In our text this morning, from John chapter 4, the gospel lesson just read, Jesus is heading from Judah to Galilee, from the south up north. And verse 4 tells us he had to go through Samaria. Right? This would be the most direct route. Judea, north to Samaria, and then further north into Galilee. But there's a complication, right? Devout Jews, many very strict Jews, would not travel through Samaria. They would take a long route, right? They would actually cross the Jordan River, go up on the other side of the Jordan, avoiding Samaria, and then cut into Galilee, back across the river, way north. And the reason for this is that there was intense racial and theological hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And this hatred is long-standing. It goes back to the 8th century B.C. It goes back to the time of the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom, which was known as Samaria. The Assyrians exiled the ten northern tribes, and then what they did... You can read about this in the books of Kings. What they did was they repopulated the land with foreigners. And many of these foreigners would eventually marry the people that were left behind at the time of the invasion. So in the minds of Jews, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were imposters. They were impure. They were not Jews. They're unclean. And on top of this, the Samaritans set up their own temple. They had their own holy mountain. They even had their own Bible. Because they only received the first five books of Moses. Nothing after that they thought was scripture. This is called the Samaritan Pentateuch. You can read it today. The Samaritan Pentateuch. There's a small group of Samaritans that exist to this very day. They're still present in the world. And the hostility here, then, is very deep. About a century before our text, the Jews went up and destroyed the Samaritan temple. And then about a generation before the text, the Samaritans went to the Jerusalem temple and scattered bones throughout the temple to defile it. Right? And on certain occasions, they'd have to call out the Roman troops and dispatch troops to quell the fighting between the Jews and the Samaritans. This is not a little, you know, kind of unpleasant theological disagreement. This is a low-level civil war. Later in this gospel, in in the gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus is called a Samaritan and demon-possessed in the same breath. You, You remember the famous story in Luke's gospel where Jesus is preaching. He's in Samaria and he's rejected. In Samaria, his gospel, and Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, Lord, how about we call down fire from heaven and destroy them all? All That's what Jews thought of Samaritans. That's why it's such an offense, a startling, shocking offense, when Jesus makes Jewish leaders the villains and a Samaritan the hero in his parable about loving the neighbor. So this is very intense. It's a smoldering cauldron. And with that background, I want to make two points. 
the well and the mountain, they're there in the back inside page of your bulletin. So first the well. So unlike his stricter contemporaries, Jesus walks through Samaria. This is very significant. Right? It would mark him out in our terms as a liberal. What is he doing walking through Samaria? If he hadn't, this conversation would never have occurred. Though he would have the admiration of the strict religious folks. He walks right up. And he comes to Jacob's well, the text says, tired as he was from the journey. Beautiful phrase. Tired as he was from the journey. He sits down by the well. The word become flesh, John tells us. Right, The word has become flesh. And flesh means you get tired. Right? Jesus is not Superman. He's flesh. With all of its frailty and weakness, all of its infirmities, he gets worn out. He gets hungry. And he gets thirsty. He needs to sit down. It's about noon. This is the natural time for a break. For Jesus. And a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. There's already something fishy here. It's not the natural time for her to come to the well. Because women would draw water in groups. And they would avoid the heat of the day. They'd either come in the morning or they'd come at night. Right? Perhaps her shame, which we will learn of later, leads her to come by herself in the middle of the day. But Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. Now, before we get to the substance of the conversation, I want to comment on the fact of the conversation. In other words, the fact that there's a conversation at all, which of course owes itself to the fact that Jesus decides, I'm going to walk through Samaria. But there's other, there's other things at play here. Jesus has great demands placed on him. Right? People are following him. People are always tugging at his sleeve. People have needs. He teaches. He walks from town to town. He's got these disciples who, to put it mildly, are needy at this point. He barely has a few moments alone, it appears. But he doesn't have one of these um, shriveled up, guarded hearts that's always protecting itself. That's always making sure it never gets wounded. Right? That refuses to take any risks or to shoulder the weight and the burden of the broken world. He isn't practiced at the art of protecting his heart. His heart is Catholic, large, and expansive. And he's willing to shoulder the burdens, not only of his great messianic mission and calling, of his public ministry in general, but all the burdens along the way, including the burden that is this woman in her need. I mean, you can only imagine the natural tendency would be to say, I'm tired. We've walked miles. It's noon. I'm thirsty. The last thing I want to do is reach out and have a conversation with this woman. It's lunchtime. Besides, no one would expect me to do it. In fact, I'm expected not to do it. By the Torah-loving Jews. I just want a 30-minute break from ministry. So the text makes me wonder, like how many opportunities we miss. 
because we're deeply interested mainly in protecting our own mental health, guarding our hearts from too much overinvestment. Yes, 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 we need rest and relaxation. Jesus will go away and get it. We, we need to take vacation. Of course, of course. You know, but we don't need it more than he needed it. Besides, here's a little secret. The world is run by really tired people. Right? The world is run by tired. The world is not run by people sleeping nine hours a night or ten hours a night. Nations, churches, missionary works, hospitals, corporations. You think the guys at the top of the corporation are well-rested? Ministries, mercy organizations, schools, builders, families are run by really tired people. Right? There is no other kind of leader in the world except a really tired one. A well-refreshed, not tired leader is an oxymoron. So, so note, just note this here. Everything that occurs here springs out of this hidden wellspring in our Lord's weary and compassionate humanity. Weary as he was from the journey. There's a wonderful medieval hymn in Latin. It's called Dies Irae, the wrath of God. Dies Irae. It has this line in it. Faint and weary, thou hast sought me. Isn't that spectacular? You know, you hear these stories of the hound of heaven, the hound of heaven sought me, the hound of heaven sought me. Yeah, but the hound of heaven sought you incarnate, faint and weary, exhausted, tired, thirsty. That's what you have in this text. You have God, faint, weary, seeking this woman. The mere existence of this conversation is a marvelous act of compassion. And so... Jesus breaking all the taboos with regard to Samaritans and women. Right? There's a double set of taboos here. She's a Samaritan and she's a woman. He speaks to her. Right? And we have rabbinic testimony which says no respecting rabbi talks to a Samaritan. And especially to a woman alone. Not even in public. There were rabbis who thought you couldn't talk to your own wife in public. You think the Mike Pence rule is strict? He's like a libertine Philistine compared to these first century rabbis. So already, already, this is a gospel. And we are meant to see this here, right? This is a gospel where male, female, slave, free, Jew, Greek, every barrier is already beginning to fall. That's what Jesus is doing, exhausted by this well. Will you give me a drink, he says. It's actually an unexpected act of goodwill. And she's surprised by it. She says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And you get this lovely little parenthetical phrase there at the end of verse 9 says, for the Jews have no dealings or associations with the Samaritans. It probably means the Jews don't share with the Samaritans. So, so the idea here is this. Jesus, if he was an observant Jew, 
He couldn't drink from her water jar without contracting uncleanness. It's not just that she's a Samaritan and she's a woman and he talks to her. He says, give me your glass. I want to drink out of it. So, he then shifts the conversation to his mission, right? If you knew the gift of God and who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you this living water. It's a marvelous depiction of our God. Jeremiah says it but it's in other places, that he is the fountain of living waters. The gift, which is now the source of life-giving water, is now standing in front of this woman. And she takes him literally. This happens a lot in John's Gospel. She takes him literally. She wants to know how she can get this water. Do Do you think you're greater than our father Jacob? Jesus keeps directing her to the things that are above, the heavenly things. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. I mean, on one level, that's just a simple biological fact. On the other hand, we'll see that he knows her real thirst. And he knows it can't be slaked, quenched with the waters of this world. They will never provide enough lasting satisfaction for her. And he's probably alluding to something like that here. Whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. This is ultimately eternal satisfaction in the coming age, right? Ultimately, it's being fully alive in glory with the glorified Christ. To have this water is to be empowered and quickened by the Spirit, who, of course, is the water in view in the text, right? Yet we get it now. We get a nice first draft a down payment, a pledge. Of course, in this age, we have to keep drinking, don't we? Jesus is pointing to a time when you'll never thirst again. In this age, we will thirst again. Jesus himself says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. But it's okay that we have to keep drinking, Jesus says, because there's an infinite supply. The water is continually, inwardly supplied to us, Jesus says. It becomes in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Isaiah 12 alludes to this and says, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. There's a kind of endless, everlasting supply of the Spirit. We need to drink of the Spirit and be Filled with the Spirit. The church is to be filled up, Paul says, to all the fullness of God. This is a magnificent, uh, liberating image, right? I mean, the Isaiah text and this text speak of a kind of bubbling, a bubbling joy that wells up from within. It creates a people who frolic, who have a sort of childish glee, who have a robust celebratory approach to life. Right? There's a picture of children splashing around in the water. It's, a, it's an image of not only refreshment, but exuberance and renewal. And this water is given to you by the risen and ascended Jesus. John chapter 7, a little later in this gospel, will tell us that Jesus gives the Spirit when he's glorified. This is what the woman needs, even though she's barely conscious of it. 
John, Jesus has already referred to this water in last week's sermon. When he told Nicodemus, you need to be born of water and the Spirit. So the promise here is magnificent. It's not just a kind of spiritual aid or booster. This is the promise of a new order, of resurrection life. It's the promise of remaking all dead and dying things in a kind of vivid, indestructible fullness. So Jesus is saying to this woman, look, I'm not just a moral teacher. I'm here to renovate your human nature, to make you whole. We saw the New Testament lesson this morning from Revelation 7. The redeemed before the throne, the picture is the Lamb guides them the springs of living water, and He wipes away every tear from their eyes. So this is really another, and we'll see this throughout John's Gospel, it's another staggering claim that Jesus is making. He's saying, I'm the giver of the water that remakes the world. And the woman, of course, seems interested, but she still seems to be taking him literally. And so Jesus ups the ante in the conversation. And that brings me to the second point, the mountain. He tells her to call her husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. Formally, this is correct. But it's a little misleading, right? It's like you ask your kid, Johnny, did you, punch a, did you punch Susie? And he says no, and you find out he was just slapping her in the face. Right? So technically, she's like, no, I, I don't have a husband. And, and Jesus says, yes, you're right. Uh, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. So this gets her attention, as you might imagine. He knows her thirst. He knows the water she needs. But it's very important to notice the way the conversation goes. It's interesting, is it? Jesus does not say another syllable about her five husbands and her current man that she now has. Doesn't address it again. People often say that she changes the subject in verse 19 when she says, like she's trying to be evasive when she says, Sir, I can see that you're a prophet. I don't think so. For one thing, Jesus has just demonstrated that he is a prophet. And secondly, if we know anything about Jesus, as he's revealed to us in the Gospels, he does not have the flow of conversations dictated to him. He talks about what he wants to talk about. And Jesus, the prophet, will have the conversation that she initiates about worship. This is what he wants to talk about. He wants to talk to her about worship. You know, you know what we would do? We would likely try something like this. Nice try, miss. I brought up the five husbands and you give me like a theological question. But that evasion is not going to stand here. We're going to talk about your current situation. After all, this kind of immorality cannot be left unaddressed. Once we straighten out your living situation, then we can talk about worship. Right? That doesn't happen here. Right? Happens in almost every church, doesn't happen here. Jesus never confuses the commands, the imperatives, with the indicative of the gospel. Jesus looks at an immoral woman and says, you know what? I need to talk to her about the public worship of God. 
That's what he's doing here. Right? He doesn't want to talk to her about society's moral decay, all you corrupt Samaritans. It wasn't like this when I was a boy. We did not have women that had five husbands when I was a boy. Well, we might have when I was a boy. Maybe in my age there was, but in Jesus' age there wasn't, right? He doesn't, you know, what does he want to talk to her about? The gospel. He wants to talk about the worship of the Father. Why? Because that will address the mess she's made out of her life in due time. Not today, probably, and not tomorrow, but eventually. So notice, he never, ever replaces the gospel with some form of law. He knows what she needs, and that's why her change of topic is not an evasion. It's exactly what Jesus wants to talk about. So her question is, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Now notice, this is not a question about private worship. It's a question about public worship. Public covenant renewal worship. What's the mountain? It's Mount Gerizim. It's the mountain where the blessings of the covenant were to be pronounced when Israel entered the land. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 27. Now remember, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible. For them, Mount Gerizim was the obvious place where you would worship God. Remember, there's nothing about building a temple or a tabernacle or or Jerusalem being the place of worship until after the Pentateuch. But they don't accept those books. So they think you should worship at Mount Gerizim. Right? They, they're, in their minds, they're just being faithful to the ancient text. And you could see this mountain from where Jesus and the woman were sitting. That's why the text says, our fathers said we should worship at this mountain. Like you could point it out. But you Jews claim the place we must worship is Jerusalem. And Jesus says that with his appearing, a new time has come. This is a magnificent phrase. You see it a lot in John. Uh, Time is coming and now is. This is the future age breaking into this age. And that reality, Jesus says, makes the place of worship irrelevant. It's irrelevant. The time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Sometimes... Knowing what time you're in is important because it means that certain old quarrels and theological debates are irrelevant. There's people that love to have obsolete debates. And Jesus is saying, look, this debate about where to worship, it was fine before I was incarnate. (laughs) I'm here now. We're in the eschatological age. It's an irrelevant debate. But nevertheless, Jesus is a Jew. He's not a Samaritan. And he lets her know that. right? You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Salvation is from the Jews. The promises spring from the Davidic line and from the southern kingdom, not from the Samaritans. But nevertheless, Jesus is still on the topic of worship. He's letting the conversation be the conversation she raised. And then he says, a time is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And here he's gotten to the root of the issue. Worship is the central issue in human life. In fact, I'd go further. I'd say public worship is the central issue in human life. 
This text is about public worship. Again, it's not about private worship. We're all worshiping creatures, and we're all social animals. Therefore, public worship is at the heart of who we are. The only question is, what's being worshipped? And Jesus knows this is the root of this woman's need. Worship, Karl Barth said, is the most momentous, most urgent, most glorious action that can take place in a human life. You can strip the church of everything but its public worship. Right? You can strip it of everything. All its assets, all its committees, all its activities. Every last one of them. If you leave the preaching of the word and the public worship intact, you've touched nothing of the substance of her life. Zero. That's the centrality of what's in view here. Now that Jesus has come, we can publicly worship the Father, who was in some sense obscured before this. We can worship him in the Spirit. That is, in the power of the living water Jesus was just talking about. And we can worship him in truth, meaning in conformity with his glorious self-revelation in Jesus. We have, there's sort of a ditch on both sides of the road here. Worship in spirit without the truth is a kind of fraudulent enthusiasm. Right? There's a lot of spirit-filled this and that, but perhaps the truth may be deficient, and that's enthusiasm. Worship in the truth without the spirit, that's like mockery. That's dead orthodoxy. Neither one is really worship at all. Neither one is really worship. They must be joined. What Jesus is speaking of here, this, this is full-blooded Trinitarian worship. Worship of the Father in the truth revealed in Jesus the Son in the power and life of the Spirit. And there's a sense in which it could never have happened until he appeared. So this is heat and light together. Charismatics have a lot of heat. Presbyterians have a lot of light. We need heat and light fused together. Spirit and truth. This is fervor and vigor combined with a deep love of the truth. Right? This is content-rich worship, scripturally informed worship, intellectually serious worship, and vibrant worship. Vigorous worship. And remarkably, this is a stunning thing in this text. We are told that the Father seeks these kind of worshipers. This is an astonishing fact because the all-sufficient God is not even in need of the created order. He needs nothing. He does not need us or our praise. He doesn't need the created order. He's completely sufficient and glorious in his own life. And that Father is seeking people who will worship like this. His eyes are going back and forth, to and fro in the earth, looking for these people. You know what that means? They're really rare. Like he's not tripping over them everywhere. Jesus doesn't say, and don't worry, the Father has 1.2 billion Christians around the world, and a good 800 million of them are worshipers in spirit and the truth. He has worshipers in spirit and truth everywhere. No, God is trying to find one. He's looking for them. It's an amazing thing. 
It's kind of a warning to us, right? We can fall into a comfortable Christian habit. You know, you perform the liturgy. You do your public Christian duty. You can do it for 50 or 60 years and never once worship in the manner that's envisioned in this text. It is quite possible to never have the kind of fire and the kind of light that Jesus is after when he says, now is the time that you can worship the Father in the Spirit through the truth that's revealed in the Son. Never, never once worship out of the depth of our heart and mind in a way that's deeply emotional and deeply rational. It's quite possible to do it. In fact, it's, it's the norm for it to be done, perhaps. This is why Jesus brings this topic up with this woman. God is a spirit, he says. That means he's invisible and he's immaterial and he can't be manipulated and he can't be bought off. And he's not tied to a place. Obviously, that's part of the teaching here, right? God is not tied to any place. He's not tied to this mountain, not tied to Jerusalem. As the hymn puts it, Jesus, where are thy people meet? There they behold thy mercy seat. Where they seek thee, thou art found, and every place is hallowed ground. The worshipers of this God, notice the text. Jesus says that we must worship in spirit and in truth. There are three musts in John's gospel. You must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And true worshipers must worship the Father in spirit and truth. And with this, in an act of great tenderness, Jesus reveals himself to this woman as the Messiah. You know, when he's down south in Jerusalem and Judea, He will not tell anyone he's the Messiah. But he's up here where there are probably no bad political ideas about Messiahship. So he has no qualms telling this woman, this theologically inquisitive woman, his identity. It's quite remarkable. So we are ever dependent, desperately in need of the water that Jesus gives We're parched, we wither and die without it, even in the midst of our decent religious lives. Maybe especially in the midst of those, right? We need this water. And he says to us, we saw this in the call from Isaiah, come to the water. He invites us, everyone who's thirsty. I suspect you're thirsty. Buy without money and without cost. There's this summons to keep coming to keep drinking, to keep seeking. And what our reply, our disposition is to be, was found in the Old Testament lesson this morning from Psalm 42. Listen again to these words from Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And this panting, this thirsting for this water is directly tied by Psalm 42 to public worship. What's the next line in Psalm 42? When shall I come and appear before God? Right? When we come thirsty, drinking from the Spirit of Christ, when we come in the truth revealed in Jesus, we come ready to worship the Father. Another way to put this from this passage is this water from this well 
brings us to the mountain. We move from the well to the mountain of the heavenly Zion. The water that Jesus promises the woman is the water that allows us to be lifted up and worship. God is seeking hearts and minds with this singular passion for his worship. May he find many such among us. Amen. Amen.